What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Well, last time I taught, I said I was going to um, do a message, and I do plan to on fasting, but this morning we're going to be back in Romans 8. I really do want to wrap up my time in Romans 8. It's been, I think it's been good for me, but it's taken quite a bit of time. Not that I knew exactly how long it would take, but knowing the density of the material in Romans 8, I knew it would take a bit. Um, so we're going to look at just four verses today, uh, four really dense and I think really important verses. And uh, when we come to this last section of Romans 8, there's several questions that are asked. We're going to see one in verse 31, there's one in verse 32, there's another in verse 33, and there's a couple more later in the chapter before we end. The first question asked is in verse 31, and it's one that, quite frankly, we love. I think uh, when I read that, when I, said, when I quoted verse 31, everyone's like, amen. We love this. For one, I think we all understand it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it's very pertinent to us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If God is for us, we sang that, didn't we? I think there were two songs that that theme came up in this morning. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I think we understand that this really isn't a question looking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. It's a question that's making a point. And the point is this, that God is for us. And therefore, nothing and no one can ultimately be against us. That's the point it's making. God, if you're in Christ, and that's a big, I guess that's a big if, right? That's, that's important to put in front of that. It's not just that God is for everyone in this way, but if you are in Christ, then the, the point that's being made is God is for you. God is for you. And no one can stop him from being for you. And nothing can. And I would say, including you, including you. For those who are in Christ, make no mistake, God is for you. And if he's for you, who can be against you? Well, nobody. Um, Now think about the audience and the time in which Paul wrote this. Paul is writing or wrote this to Christians in Rome, right? It's the book of Romans. So he's writing to Roman Christians um, in about A.D. 57. Could have been 56, 58, somewhere around that time. We know that when he wrote this, the emperor at the time was a guy named Nero. Okay? Now, Nero was not a good guy. Anyone know anything about Nero? He was, a, he, was a, he was a sick guy. He was an evil, evil man who did great evil against Christians and against uh, the gospel. Um, so he was not a good guy. Uh, the first official persecution of Christians under Nero didn't start for a while, started about seven years later in AD 64. But uh, suffice it to say that many of the people that have received this letter from Paul would have lived to see those days. They did live to, live to see those days. And no doubt many of them were executed under Nero. They were fed to wild beasts. They were uh, hung on a cross they were impaled, they were um, lit on fire to light up his dinner parties. This was an evil, evil man. And Paul wanted these, Christ- these believers to know, more importantly, the Holy Spirit 
one of these believers to know, if God is for you, who can be against you? Well, Nero might kill you, but ultimately, who can be against you? Well, the answer is nobody, successfully. Nobody, ultimately. I'm reading a book again called The Hiding Place. It's the story of the the Ten Booms. Anyone familiar with that book? If you have not read that, you have to read that book at least once, maybe once every five years or so. It is just a phenomenal book. It's a story of Cory Ten Boom uh, and primarily her, her sister Betsy and father uh, and, and the family and, uh, and how they hid Jews during uh, the Nazi occupation of Holland during World War II. And uh, there's this place in the book where Cory is, is indicating that that her and her father and Betsy, who all live together, and it's their home that they're hiding people in, they're considering uh, ending their, their work because it was getting so dangerous. They were at least considering it. And there's this, lo- there's this paragraph at the end of a chapter that says this, and it's so powerful. It says that, that night, Father and Betsy and I prayed long after the others had gone to bed. The others were the Jewish people they were hiding. I think there were seven or eight at the time. And, they were, and there were hundreds that they, they hit, helped to hide other places. She goes on to say, We knew that in spite of the daily mounting risks, we had no choice but to move forward. And then this line almost had me in tears the other night when I read it. This was evil's hour, and we could not run away from it. This was evil's hour, and we could not run away from it. It's the truth that God is for us, no matter what no matter what we face, that can produce the kind of strength and fortitude to withstand the pressure to compromise, to give in, to back off. The ten booms understood this. The ten booms understood this. It didn't stop them from being caught. Corey's father died, an old man in a prison camp. Betsy, her sister, died in a prison camp. It didn't stop them from being caught and suffering at the hands of the Nazis. But God was for them. And so no one could ultimately be against them. Well, brothers and sisters, we live in an evil hour. We do. It's not hard to see. And we should want to have the same courage that Paul wants to instill in us, that he wanted to instill in the Roman Christians living under Nero, that the Ten Booms had, this, this, this courage that's born from conviction. The easiest thing for us to do right now would be to keep our mouths shut, to mind our own business, to keep our heads down, just go with the flow. But our Lord has not called us to that. He's called us to stand firm and to be faithful and to speak his truth and to, to do it in love, no, no doubt, but to speak his truth without compromise. And so we can only stand firm and secure and confident and joyful and bold if we know that God is for us. And it's not just a verse. It's not, it's not just words in a book. It's not just on the screen. It's something God-breathed that's in our souls, deep within. In fact, I think the root of all insecurities and fears and anxieties that plague many Christians is probably because they doubt this truth at some level. Experiences in life, circumstances that's like, is God for me? Everything's falling apart. 
anxieties, insecurities, fears, at some level it's because this truth is doubted. There are actually some theological systems that breed such insecurities. It's kind of baked into the system. In fact, some some would say if you get a little too secure in God and in your salvation, the thought is that it's going to lead to complacency. And so the focus is almost always and exclusively on our performance, our zeal, our diligence in prayer and Bible study, our feelings of strong faith, and so forth. Now, of course, works matter. They do. We should want to have zeal. We should want to be diligent in our Bible studies and in our prayers and and in faithful Christian witness and all of that. The problem is that it can lead to one 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 of two errors. We can be filled with pride when when we think we're doing really well. And we can be filled with utter despair when we're not. It actually ends up being like on a treadmill. A lot of effort, but in terms of getting God on our side, it gets us nowhere. Well, this passage comes to the rescue. And it really does come to the rescue. God's children can rest assured that their Father is for them now and forever. And nobody can come against them. And that's the key. Here's the key. The key is... This is the key, to get our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and onto God. That's the key. What he's done, who he is, what he's like. Of course, the Christian life is not without effort, but our confidence must be in God's work and not ours. That's got to be our confidence. That's what Paul says here. The confidence with which we can say, God is for me. No one can ultimately be against me is because of God and his work, not because of ours. Martin Lloyd-Jones once made a wonderful insight when he said the gospel means good news, not good advice. In other words, the gospel it doesn't start with you must do thus and so. Here's some good advice. Here's what you must do. The gospel begins with God has done all of this for you. Isn't he amazing? Now trust him and follow him. So the, right, the, the, the exhortation comes after the news of what God has done. And that's the point of our passage. So I want to answer three questions from these verses, right? Romans 8, 28 to 31. Um, And the big point is, God is for us, and so nobody can ultimately or successfully be against us for those who are in Christ. Here's three questions I want to answer to kind of unpack that. Number one, what is the foundation of this truth that God is for us? What's the foundation Number two, what does it mean that nobody can be against us? Because it clearly doesn't mean that nobody can oppose us. I mean, it it just doesn't, because we 
experience opposition. And number three, how can I know that I am included in, it, in this? And that's really important too. How, do I, how can I know that I'm actually part of this? That I can say with confident boldness, if God is for me, who can be against me? God is for me. So first, the foundation. Okay, let's look at the unshakable, immovable foundation of this mighty truth that God is for you if you are in Christ. To understand this, we need to follow the Holy Spirit's logic. Okay? And I want to warn you, there are some things in this text that some people, even Christians, find hard to accept. Okay? We're going to look at some words. You're going to hear a word, especially one word. You're going to be like, ooh, I've heard of that word. I'm not sure I like that. That's okay. It might step on some toes. It might, might mess with some traditions that we have or whatever. Um, some things we're going to look at are viewed as somewhat controversial. But I'll be honest, I have found over the years that the hardest truths for us to accept are often the ones we need most. Especially when the Bible is fairly clear and we find ourselves pushing back against certain truths because it doesn't fit into how we think things ought to be. It might just be exactly what we need. So what is the foundation of this confidence that God is for us? Before asking, before Paul asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? That rhetorical question, there's another question he asks, and it's this. What then shall we say to these things? And so we need to look at what are these things he's talking about. Because it's these things that form the foundation of our confidence to say God is for us. Okay? So what are these things? And we find these things. And we could, we could probably say it's all of Romans 8, maybe even most of the book of Romans. But I think primarily Paul is addressing what he just talked about in verses 28 to 30. And so let me read those verses again. 28 to 30 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, namely Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The emphasis here is clearly on God's action, God's ability, what God does. In fact, you don't hear anything about what we do. It's all about what God does. That's where our confidence must be derived. That must be the foundation we build on or our foundation will eventually crumble because we will fail if it's based on us. First, Paul deals with God's activity in providentially governing the universe for the good of his people. Think about what verse 28 says. God does everything he does. Now, we might say, first of all, for his glory, and that's true. But verse 28 puts the emphasis on he does it for the good of his people. God causes all things to work together for the good of his people. Does that not give us confidence to say, then certainly God is for me. 
If everything he's doing is for my good, then he is for me. If he's working all these things together, remember that, I think it was about three or four weeks ago I taught on just verse 28, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the, the word that's translated works together, it's, it's the Greek word synergeho, it's the idea of synergistically. He works things together. All these things work together synergistically to give us our greatest good. Certainly God is for us, isn't he? What is the foundation of our confidence that God is for us? God is working all things for the good of his people. All things, not some things. But then verses 29 and 30 addresses something else. So first of all, we, we can have confidence God is for us because he's the governor of the universe and he's working all things together for our good. Verses 29 and 30 puts the emphasis on this though. Here's another reason why we can be confident God is for us is because he has the power and purpose to save and keep saved his people. So I want to step through verses 29 and 30. Since we, we spent a whole Sunday on verse 28, I want to spend some time on verses 29 and 30. And I want you to notice how when it goes from foreknowledge, God foreknowing, to predestinating, to justifying, excuse me, calling, to justifying, to glorifying, that it is God doing each of these actions. It's God doing these things. And I also want you to notice that it is the same group of people he's doing it for. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. It's God doing all these things, and it's for the same group of people, which means that if you are among those people, it gives you great confidence from foreknowledge to glorification that God will save and keep you. So let's briefly look at each one of these phrases, one of these, each one of these steps, you might say. Actually, I'd put it this way. Each one of these, I've heard, I've heard a, a one man in particular call this the, the God's golden chain of redemption. Right? It's a chain with a bunch of links that are connected, and it's God's chain of redemption. Let's look at each phrase in this chain of redemption. First, it says, those whom he foreknew... He also predestined. The word foreknew. Let's look at that first. Now, this is not describing God foreknowing facts or just foreknowledge of information. Right? It's not, it's not saying that God looks down the corridor of times and since he knows everything and knows the future, he looks down and he sees, inform- he sees things that's gonna, that are going to happen in the future and so he foreknows things or information or facts. It's talking about him foreknowing people. This is really important. Those are two very different things. God taking information about what's going to happen in the future and God foreknowing, knowing beforehand individual people. This is saying God foreknew people. The word, um, maybe maybe you're, you're aware of this, but the word know in the Bible I mean, it can just mean, you know, knowing information or knowing facts. But often the word know in the Bible is used to describe an intimate knowledge of a person. 
So I think it's in the King James, probably. Somebody might correct me. King James buffs out here. But where it describes Adam knowing Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a son. So it's that kind of intimate knowledge. Paul, descri- Paul says in, Gal- I think it's Galatians 4, talks about knowing God or rather being known by God. What, what is that? It's God knowing, entering into a relationship in a saving way with somebody, knowing them in that way. It's more important that God knows us in that way, isn't it? It's so important. It's all important that God knows us. Well, Paul is saying that, talking about this foreknowledge of people. To be known in this way by God describes God entering into a saving relationship with a person. The fact that God foreknows people means that he entered into a saving, intimate relationship with that person from all eternity. Before the foundation of the world. So God, those whom he foreknew, it says this, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That word predestined. This is the word that draws such controversy, isn't it? Or at least among some. But let's face it. Every Christian, every Bible-believing Christian, which I guess that's the only kind that there is, every Christian believes in predestination because it's in the Bible. I mean, unless you just say, nah, there's parts of the Bible I don't believe. No, we all believe in predestination. We all believe that God predestines things. It's a Bible word. It simply means to decide beforehand or to, or to ordain before. The word predestined, that's all it means. And, and, and so to predestine something. Where there's disagreement is on what basis is, does God predestine? Is it on the basis of what God sees a person will do in the future? Right? In time, in the future, he, he sees that someone will repent or believe or, or do thus and so. Or is, is it in the final analysis based on God's choice? I mean, that, that's where the difference is. And I believe the Bible teaches that it is ultimately, not that our choices don't matter, they really do, what we do matters, but I believe ultimately it's based on God's choice. The Bible teaches, says that God chooses and that human beings are also agents who make free choices. They're not coerced into doing anything. No one's coerced to believe in Jesus. No one is held back from believing in Jesus. The Bible teaches both of these things and uh, we just say, okay, that's what it says. Both are in the Bible and so we must not be forced to choose between the two of them. But here's what I want you to notice. Notice what the Bible says people are predestined to here in verse 29. They're predestined. What's the destination God is after? What's the the destination God has ordained for his people? It's this, to be conformed to the image of his son. You ever thought about that? You were predestined. I mean, before the, if you are in Christ, you can, before the foundation of the world, God predestined you to be just like his son, Jesus. That is glorious. You want to be like Christ? Every Christian does. If you're like, eh, not really, 
then you're not a Christian. You're not. Every Christian wants to be like Christ. I mean, we realize change is hard. Sometimes we get pulled away from sinful habits. We get that. But ultimately, underneath everything, we want to be like Christ. Well, that's God's predestined purpose for you. Is to be like his son, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that, now listen to this, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there might be this whole family, the whole family of God is being conformed to the image of Christ. Of course, we're not talking about physically, we're talking about spiritually, uh, character-wise, all of that, the fruit of the Spirit, all of these things with the personalities God has given us and the intricacies he's given us as part of our design by God under his, in his wisdom, we become like our bro- elder brother, Jesus Christ. We were predestined to bear the family resemblance as children of God. And that's actually what Paul says in Ephesians 1. There's only, I think, six places in the Bible that use the word predestined or use that Greek word that's translated most often predestined. Another place is Ephesians 1. Actually, two are in, Ephes- two are in Ephesians 1, two here in Romans 8. Um, here's what Ephesians 1, 5 says. God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's amazing. What did God predestine us for? To be part of his family. He wants, he wants a big house full of children. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. The call here is referring to something that happens in time when the Holy Spirit awakens and draws someone who's lost to Christ to trust him. Do you remember when that happened to you? I mean, some don't. Some, it happens for some really young, or maybe it almost just happens like seemingly over time, even though there probably was a moment. But if you remember when that happens, happened to you, that was when the Spirit called you and opened up your eyes and said, whoa, I'm a, I'm a mess, and there's a Savior, and he is worthy, and I trust him. Those whom he called, he justified. This is the great truth recovered during the Reformation, to be justified by faith alone in Christ means to be declared not guilty, even more to be declared righteous. We sang earlier about Jesus, right? Behold him there, the risen lamb. I love that phrase, my perfect spotless righteousness. To be justified is to be declared righteous in God's sight because the righteousness of Christ is counted as ours. God's the one who justifies. We don't justify ourselves. God justifies. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now this is fascinating. Because glorification, all these other things for the Christian are things that have actually already happened in the past. Right? God foreknew us. God predestined, called. Okay, there was a time when we were called and trusted in Jesus. Justified when we believed in him. We were justified instantly in a moment and still are. But glorification still in the future. And yet Paul speaks of it as though it's already happened. 
Brothers and sisters, this is to give us great confidence that the one who began a good work will complete it. Those whom he has just those whom he has justified, he will glorify. It is such a certainty that if you're in Christ, he will bring you all the way to the finish line and then bring you home to himself. That Paul can speak of glorification as though it's already happened. Experientially, we get it. It's still in the future. But in terms of God's purpose and plan, it is done. Now, did you see in each step, it described what God does. He foreknows people. He predestines. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. And did you see that it's the same group of people from one step to the next? Those whom he did this, he also did this, and also, and so forth. What's the point of all this? Well, here's what Paul says. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the point. Our God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Our God has the power and the prerogative to save and to keep his people saved. If God is for us, who can be against us? Brother, I can't say this strongly enough. This is the only sure foundation for our confidence is God. We serve a God who saves. He doesn't just try to save, he saves. Okay, let's look at this next question. Who can be against us? What does that mean? Okay, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Um, again, what does that mean? Well, it certainly does not mean that no one can ever oppose us or that we don't suffer opposition because we do. In fact, we're promised that we do and God's, God is not a schizophrenic. So he's not saying no one can oppose you, but you're gonna be opposed. So it doesn't mean that. We will experience opposition It doesn't mean that we will never suffer, suffer loss, suffer difficulty. We have, each one of us, we do, and we will. It never means that we will never stumble into sin or that we never sin. Maybe I should put it that way. We do. So what does it mean that when Paul asks who can be against us or I think putting it in more of a statement, No one can be against us. It means that nobody or nothing can successfully oppose or withstand or destroy us in an ultimate sense. No one or nothing can ultimately overcome God's people. No person, no host of demons, no circumstances, no sickness, no accusation, not even the threat of death can, and this is the key, destroy our faith. None of those things can. And you can't if you truly are in Christ. 
Now, how can that be? Is it because our faith is so strong? No. Listen, of course, we want strong faith. We should want strong faith. I think every time we gather on the Lord's Day and the songs we sing and the message that's proclaimed, I hope it's meant to build up our faith and encourage our faith. We want strong faith. But what causes our faith to grow? Is it looking within, looking at our efforts, looking at our growth, looking even at the strength of our faith? It's not. Our faith soars. It soars. When we get our eyes off of ourselves and we get our eyes on God, when we look to him. So who can be against us? Who or what can destroy the faith of the man or woman who has been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified? Nobody can. Nothing can. And it's because our Father will keep us. He will be faithful to keep us. This is security, real security, okay? People want security. We live in a very insecure world right now. I mean, just on probably on all levels, We all feel it probably differently, personally, but then there's some big ways that we probably all see, wow, there's a lot of insecurity, right? War in the Middle East, again. Who knows what's going to happen if that's going to spill out? Probably will to a broader thing. There's a lot of insecurity. This is true security. This This is the kind of security we need. This is our boast and our confidence that God will keep us, that God will uphold us, that God will bring us all the way to the end. I cringe and shudder when I hear people talk about how they will endure to the end or they would never because they are, have such strong faith or because they're so committed or because they're so diligent or because of their experiences or whatever. What is our boast? It's the Lord. It's in his strength. It's in his commitment. It's in his zeal. It's in his power. 1 Corinthians 1 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we are to boast in the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping God. It is the strength of Christ that we anchor our trust in. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 10. These are precious, precious words. Here's what he says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who's going to snatch us out of the hand of Christ? No one. Then he goes on and says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is meant to give us great courage and confidence. This is meant to strengthen us to be able to say with conviction, If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Now, I've heard people say, and maybe I've said this, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I have. Well, yeah, no one can snatch us out of the hand of Jesus, but can we jump out? You ever heard that before? But wouldn't that completely undo the security, the assurance Christ is trying to give us? Listen, if I could lose my salvation, I would have lost it long ago. And you would have too. So, what's the foundation? It's God's providential governing of the universe to work all things together for the good of his people. It is his power to save and keep saved his people. What does it mean that God, that no one can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? It means no one, no one can destroy us. Not all the powers of hell, not whatever, not the World Economic Forum or anybody else, the UN, no one, right? The worst president in the world, whoever. Supreme Court, no one can take us down if we're in Christ, okay? No one can destroy our faith because God will be faithful to keep us. So here's the last question. Am I included or how do I know that I'm included in this? And that's a really important question. How do I know that I'm in this? How do I know this is talking? How do I know that I'm part of the for those for whom he did this, he did this? How do I know? How do I know I'm part of this? And this is where some people can get tripped up. If God predestines, does it matter how I respond? Absolutely. 1,000% it does. So how do we know? Are we supposed to go back and try to pry into God's eternal plan, predestined plan, or anything like that? No. That is a futile effort. The point of this passage is not to drive us to endless speculation about predestination, foreknowledge, how it all works. The point is to get us to the place where we boastfully declare, God is for me. So how do we know? How do we know that we're included? I was reminded um, yesterday, last night, of the, the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a 15-year-old boy who uh, you know, normally went to a church that was a little further from his home, but it was a snowstorm, so he ended up at this little Methodist church, about 10 people there, because there was a snowstorm. And uh, the, the pastor couldn't make it, so I think it was a deacon or somebody else got up, somebody who was not used to teaching, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Pre- Preachers at that time, said he wasn't, he wasn't a good preacher. He mispronounced the words. I mean, just kind of stumbled through his message a bit. But, it, but a deacon got up and began to teach because the pastor couldn't make it. And Spurgeon said the deacon, again, was unimpressive, not an intellect, but he opened up to a verse in uh, Isaiah 45 and read verse 22. And in the reading And the short exhortation from this verse, Charles Spurgeon was saved. Here's what it says. Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. This deacon made a few comments, then raised his voice and began to call upon the people present to look to Christ. Charles Spurgeon heard him shout, Young man, look to Christ. 
Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look to Christ. And Spurgeon did. And there was no turning back. Changed his life. How do you know you're included in this? This glorious assurance that God is for me and no one can be against me. Look to Christ. That's how you know. Are you looking to Christ? I'm not saying, did you do that one time a long time ago and now you're just kind of going through the motions? Look to Christ. Look to the cross. Look to what he did for you. What he accomplished for you. Look to it. Look to it always and ever. Never put that down. Always look to Christ. Look to Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, after the great chapter of faith, Right, All these men and women who by faith did these things, he says, what, how, does it, how does it begin? Therefore, since we have this great cloud of witnesses right, that have gone before us, they're watching, perhaps, from heaven. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside. Actually, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us... Run the race with endurance, looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Look to Christ. Look at what he's accomplished for you. Total forgiveness, justification, adoption, eternal life. It's yours. In Christ. And if you're looking to Christ, and if you're looking to Him alone, and not Him and kind of you, but Him alone, just like I think Tim Keller wrote a book called The Gift of Self Forgetfulness. Does that ring a bell with anyone? I've not read it, but I think I saw it in someone's house, okay? Um, Great title. I don't know if it's good or not, but great title, anyways. Look to Christ. And if you do, then he foreknew you and he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son so that you might be part of this whole host, these, this big family in God that God has to fill his house. And he called you. He called you. Right? Jesus said it. My sheep hear my voice. He called you. And he's justified you. And because it is so certain that he will bring you to the end, Paul says he's been glorified. I mean, that's still future. We'll experience that in the future when we're raised, right, bodily and so forth. But it is as good as done. And if that's true, brothers and sisters, obstacles may come. They will we're going to face trials. Luke started off our service by expressing Paul's trials. He's the one that said this. Has anyone that in the, in the whole you know, history of the Christian church suffered, saint I'm talking about, believer, suffered like Paul that we know of, perhaps, but not that we know of. So we're going to face trials. All that's promised. But God is for you. The God of the universe, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth is for you. Therefore, nobody 
and nothing can successfully be against you because God's purposes will not be, cannot be thwarted. Well, may this be your security in this insecure world that we live in, right? That we, like, it just feels like things are shaking around us. I mean, and they are. But this can be our security, freeing us from a thousand fears and anxieties that we have. Some, I mean, a lot, listen, sometimes I am ashamed at the things that I fret about. <laughs> and listen, I'm talking about like small things, <laughs> okay? I'm like, oh, no, Lord, help me not be such a wuss, okay? So it'll free us from a thousand fears and anxieties, small ones and really big ones. May this be your joyful boast. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Maybe even with a little bit of sanctified swagger. If God is for me, who can bring it on? I mean, not not because we're great, but because of the God who's for us. May this produce confident courage to live for God's glory to speak on God's behalf, to be ambassadors, to be faithful ambassadors. We are ambassadors, but to be faithful ambassadors, speaking to people God's truth, unafraid of the consequences. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and confidently declare, if God is for me, who can be against me? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We thank you. Father, may we say like the psalmist, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me?